I am Emily Lyons. In 2009, without a high school degree and no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. But since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be lifted and shifted by these people too. After all, all inspiring people are inspired people. So get ready to be inspired. This is Mind Your Business. All right, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks for being here. I had to have you on because you are not just an incredible human, but you're also an enigma, like a serious enigma. (laughs) You are not a typical person that I would talk to. How do you describe who John Griffin is? I suppose one of the ways that I try to explain my career more so than myself as a person, although I think it helps kind of bridge the two, is that I've been operating in the same career for the last 22 years, but I also have seen it as almost a 22-year summer job. This is (laughs) a career that I fell into by accident. There's very few people that get into insurance on purpose. It's a wonderful industry of folks who, for the most part, end up here by happenstance. There's the odd person who is born into it and is you know fourth, fifth, sixth generation insurance person. There's folks who go to school for actuarial studies who study insurance their whole lives and end up in insurance. And I'm somebody who took this on as a summer job 22 some odd years ago. And I'm on and my intent originally was to save up enough cash to go and do a master's of folklore at Memorial University in Newfoundland. Hey. And I still have every intention of retiring and going and doing a master's of folklore. So at some point, I'll be done with my career and will continue on with my studies. But in the meantime, I'm a bit peculiar in that this is still something that I find really rewarding, mentally stimulating, but has never necessarily been a central passion of mine. And it's something that I fell into by accident. I've been able to continue on and execute on really well over the last uh, couple decades. So you worked for a company for a long time. And then you had two friends reach out to you. They'd started their own company and they wanted you to come on board with them and jump ship. Yeah. So the company I'm at right now is Sterling Capital Brokers. I've known the two founders for the better part of the last decade, one of them a little bit over a decade. And they had founded the business. I joined in 2019 in May. The business itself started in 2014. When I joined, we were roughly 12 employees. I think I was employee number 12. I joined as president I didn't even necessarily know what my title was going to be until they gave me the offer letter. It was just a good opportunity and a great opportunity to join a fast-moving operation. And we're now up to over 150 employees. So we've 10x'd, more than 10x'd almost every way that you would measure a company, whether you measure us by any financial metric, certainly by the headcount. We've managed to more than 10x in the last four years of, of operating. And we've executed on a rather novel path through the last couple of years. We've shifted from being a insurance broker providing advice and consulting services uh, to being largely a third-party administrator providing administrative services along with that, as well as found a way to capitalize our business and become a aggregator. So we're out actually making mergers and acquisitions with other firms across the country to expand our footprint. We were very much a Toronto-centric firm when I joined and in partnership with uh, with the two the founders of Sterling, Dave and Stefan. We've managed to complete nine M&A transactions over the past four years. We have firms now right across the country from Halifax to British Columbia. We've grown a lot more and a lot faster than we ever thought we could. And, and it's been a really amazing journey for that entire time. What do you think really attributed to that huge growth? 
I think we've established that we have a right to win with our value proposition. And that's, I suppose, the best way to put it. We went out and built a technology platform that just allows us to do more, right? So simply put, we get in front of a client, we have a good conversation about what they're getting currently in terms of how they're being serviced by their current advisor. And we're able to do more than the average advisor. That actually has become a really key part of our M&A strategy. Um, We're very different from some of our other aggregators who have gone across the country to purchase or merge with other consulting firms in that we're looking specifically for folks who want to continue on. We're not looking for folks who want to take a full exit. We're looking for folks who want to continue on operating the business. And we're looking for a differentiator, something that helps them continue to grow their business and to market aggressively in their location. We're also trying to focus on geographical diversity. So taking what we do really well in the in the GTA and going elsewhere. And you know, we've made purchases in Red Deer, Alberta and Vancouver, Victoria on the island of Vancouver Island, as well as Vancouver proper, as well as Halifax, and deploying that technology in different geographic locations with a local team doing all the servicing. That's really important. We're a very decentralized company when it comes to how we deliver the services that we do, which gives us a really good marketing spin in each of our different geographies. And so you get a different look and feel for Sterling right across the country, but you tend to get it with a, a centralized idea of what additional services that we can provide mm-hmm. for the same comparison. And that's very different than I think most other firms, especially when you consider that we've done the really weird thing of investing in software as a service provider. We don't consider ourselves a tech company necessarily. We think we're a software-enabled service provider. But that investment alone right now of our 150 employees, about 40 to 45 are an engineering team and development team developing our own software. That alone is a really strange orientation in our marketplace to have 30 to 33% of your entire workforce being dedicated to development. There's probably not another brokerage firm in Canada that can say that. And that all helps us continue to grow the divide between us and others because we're simply doing more for folks. Hmm. I love that. Now, you obviously took a big risk though when you say that there was only 12 people there. And you already had, I mean, you had a great career. You were making good money. Weren't you, were you nervous or? I don't think I was necessarily nervous. So I, I'm more of a risk taker in mm. general. I don't think I would qualify myself as an entrepreneur. I'm more of an operator. I work with a set of really excellent entrepreneurs right now. And they're folks who know how to build a business from scratch and bootstrap it. And you know, they, they did this without any paid in capital. They did this with the, entirely on their own. We got our first institutional investment in February of 2022. But from 2014 to 2022, there was no outside investment. It was really wow. just a hustle. And getting to know them over the years and continuing to work with them over the years, every time you know, we talk about the challenges that they happened to be facing before I joined and even after, we had a very simple saying that sales solves all problems. Just go out and sell more and find a way to generate more revenue. And you'll probably figure out how to continue to invest in the business. And, I love and, that. Sales solves grow. all problems. It, there's very few problems in a business that sales cannot solve. <laughs> and and it has allowed us to um, continue to grow and continue to invest in both our business and our people. And that consistency and that mindset of growth um, has allowed us to continue to see that exponential growth. We've averaged, you know, our compound annual growth rate from inception to now is in the triple digits. It's over 100%, which is really unusual. That leans very much like a typical startup or a typical software company, except we're doing it in a mature way. We've always been cash flow positive. So we've always been profitable. And and all of those things make it, I'm not going to say easy to grow because growth is difficult. But what that does is from a culture perspective, it creates a mindset 
geared toward growth. You've never seen a leadership team wring its hand more about losing a very small client than ours. We obsess over the idea of you know what happened for us to lose it. Was it situational? Was it the service team dropping something? The sales team dropping something? Okay. And what can we do to, to fix it? But that idea that we're not perfect, that there's not a franchise of great ideas, all those sort of cultural pieces <laughs> help you grow more because you're focused on growth. And obviously where you focus and where you spend your time, effort, and where you make the investment in capital, you're going to see results. And I can say that that's certainly a large part of what we've been able to do over the past decade or so. Oh, I love that. Has there been any rough patches? Yeah, I think that our problems are very champagne problems. Like we have very good problems. Like a typical problem at Sterling is, oh my God, we sold 40 cases this month, but we only have capacity to implement 30. What do we do? Mm-hmm. And and I think that those types of problems are... I like to define success personally, to say it in a slightly different way. I like to define success personally as the ability to choose your stress. If you are at a place in your life where you can choose the type of stress that you're dealing with on a regular basis, you, I think you can consider yourself successful. And we're certainly in that sort of place now. We have what I call very good stress. I don't think you can live a stress-free life. I think stress is going to come one way or another. But if you can put yourself in a position where you're choosing your stress, I think that that's remarkable. And our stress tends to be good stress. How do we manage the growth? How do we find good people? Most of our hiring has been in that past four years. If we're up to 150-some-odd employees and we started with 12 in 2019 then the intervening 138 people that we've hired have all been onboarded in the last four years. That all happened during COVID. So we saw massive expansion during the the multiple lockdowns that we had in provinces right across the country. Navigating all of those sort of challenges are good. It's really fun to try and figure out how to onboard somebody in Saskatchewan when you're hiring them there for the very first time. And we saw those type of challenges as opportunities because we then decided to hire completely geography agnostic and be a remote first company. And that allowed us to actually make it more simple to find really good talent. So right, the talent crunch isn't quite as bad as it was a year and a half ago. But when our peers were complaining that it's hard to find good people, we were like, just go look for them outside of the big cities. There's Mm -hmm. lots of great people. And if you're willing to hire agnostic of geography, then you will find amazing people from coast to coast. And so we've met a lot of those challenges with just innovative thinking, if not innovation itself, about how we can solve those issues. And one of them, obviously, just remote first was really transformational for us as an operation. I found that too. Once we removed that requirement to be in a big city, it just yeah. opened things up. And our, our team has just gotten so much better over the years once we, once we removed that. Yeah, absolutely. Also, getting rid of the office entirely, not having people having to go in, meeting virtually every day. Everybody loves that. Yeah, I think that you know we've done a really good job of trying to deploy technology to provide asynchronous opportunities for people to communicate and collaborate, or as well as synchronous opportunities for people to communicate and collaborate. I think that we've also done a reasonable job of making sure that people still feel engaged, because that's the piece that you tend to miss. And that's the folks that would complain about remote first work is what do you do when it's holiday time and you're trying to get folks together. The big cities do tend to have most of our folks. So there's 60, 70 in the GTA, there's 40 some odd in Vancouver. So the larger metropolitan areas across the country tend to have a good concentration of our employees. What do you do for the one or two employees that are working more remotely? And how do you stay engaged with them? And how do you keep them interested and engaged with the operation? And I don't think that anyone has a necessarily a perfect answer for that. But I think part of that engagement comes from just the culture of being really permissive with how people work, where they work, and when they work, and being focused on the results and the productivity. And it just creates that that mutual respect between you know us as an employer as, as well as the employees. And I think that that just helps people feel empowered and liberated. Mm-hmm. Do you ever worry about the motivation or anything like that with, when they're remote? I don't personally. I can't say that everybody would have the same reaction that I do. I've always been focused on productivity 
And <laughs> because we're working remotely, we do spend a lot of time looking at our key performance indicators and understanding how performance is, is working, what people are doing, who's pushing out 400 emails a day versus 100 and what we can do to help you know bridge the gap. But we spend a lot of our time really focused on that productivity. And you know, to be frank, like this is my own, again, personal opinion. If someone can get the job done in three hours a day, then let them work three hours a day, right? If they're being just as, as productive as someone who's working eight, then amazing. Like that doesn't make a really big difference to me personally. I don't want to, you know, throw any of my management team under the bus, but I don't care. As long as folks are able to be productive and responsive to clients, it really makes no difference. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Because... I was actually I was chatting with, about uh, this with a friend the other day who's an entrepreneur, and they were saying that they wanted to go remote, but they were so worried that they wouldn't be working the entire time that they're supposed to be. But that's a great point. I mean, if they get it done in a shorter period of time, who cares? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've all worked in offices where there's people who will just wander the office for hours on end every <laughs> single day, or they disappear four or five times a day to get a coffee or go to the copying machine or go to the water cooler and have a conversation. Offices aren't always productive. I mean, no. I think that I think it is a cultural thing, and I think that folks will. I, we've interviewed some folks who said, "I have to be in an office because if I'm at home, I won't focus." And I know a lot of people who are like, "In an office, I can't focus because there's too many people around." And I think I'm I'm more personally on that side where you put me in an office and have an open door, people are going to walk in and I'm going to have conversations and I'm not going to be very productive. I'm not going to get a whole lot done. And I've become accustomed over the last couple of years of carving out time in my day to be productive and push out emails. And generally speaking, between 8 and 10 a.m., I'll push out almost all the emails that I'll do in a day. And then I'll try and grab a couple at the end of the day and choose to do mostly meetings, etc. in the middle core part of the day. And that works for me. And being able to shape my day is a big part of that remote work. I can't shape my day in an office because I can see how they could be really disruptive. So I think that you get that plus and minus from both sides. And it really is just about that cultural fit. We spend a lot of time trying to ensure people understand what culture they're walking into. And I'm a big believer in understanding your culture, representing it and its positives and its negatives and making sure that folks who are joining know what they're walking into more than anything else. How do you shape your schedule then? Are you doing like time blocking or... I don't do time blocking in the traditional sense. I don't think I'm necessarily organized enough to truly time block. I think it just, <laughs> it just right. I think it just happens that between eight and ten a.m. is when I get the least amount of meeting requests for some reason. No, nope. and maybe this is just a leftover function of the world before COVID. But nobody in Toronto schedules a nine a.m. meeting because it's incredibly difficult to get to a nine a.m. meeting with just with the way that traffic happens to work in the city. So it was a rare occurrence. So for the most part, I don't get meeting requests that begin until you know, roughly 10 a.m. or so. We also work in a national company. So a lot of our teams on the West Coast, so a 9 a.m. meeting for us is a 6 a.m. meeting for them. And that just feels rude. Why would I do that to another person? So we do try and have sort of mid-morning to early afternoon meetings. So it just opened up that I'm awake. I'm I'm up and going. I have two kids who don't sleep. So I'm usually up when they are between 6 and 7. And it's really easy to be productive between 8 and 10 o'clock when I can push out those emails. So I think that my life right now, more than anything, is probably what has dictated when I'm most productive from an email production perspective, as well as the city I live in help influence how I attend meetings and where my meetings land in the day. So definitely not traditional time blocking, but certainly situational time blocking that I think that organically has uh, come up over the last uh, couple of years. I was curious about your morning routine. Like, are you one of those people that get up and you got to go to the gym before the kids wake up? Or I'm definitely not a go to the gym before the kids wake up person. <laughs> I think that my gym sessions in the morning tend to be really low energy and not good. So why bother? And so I tend to do most of when I do work out, I'll do kind of like mid-afternoon or early evening workouts. 
at that point, I've eaten more. I don't eat a lot in the morning. So working out in the morning also almost makes me lightheaded sometimes. And I think that I wake up, I'll have a coffee. I'll have a very small breakfast usually. I'm usually at my desk by 8 o'clock, sort of pounding through emails, returning phone calls, doing all that doing all that kind of thing. I don't think I'm particularly routined in the morning. Like I'll drop the kids off usually between 7.30 and kind of 8 to 8.30, depending on traffic and how that works. They're at school or daycare in the intervening hours. <laughs> and then I'll come back in this, get to work, and then in the afternoon, go you know, pick up the kids. Do um, anything crazy? No cold plunges or no cold plunges. Um, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I tend to believe that you know you got to do what works for you. Absolutely. Um, and cold plunges have they sound like a nightmare. <laughs> and everyone who describes the experience talks about how awful it feels, but then how great it feels after. And I've never been a believer in that sort of post-workout euphoria or post-cold plunge euphoria that people talk about. I've been told by a lot of folks I should do more cardio. I have no interest in cardio. And they talk about that runner's high that it's like, you know, once you hit that fifth mile or kilometer, if you hit a good pace, you just start really feeling good and the endorphins start. That has never happened to me. It doesn't matter how long or how hard I've, I've run. It's funny because I saw this thing not too long ago and it was saying that your genetics determine whether or not you actually get that. Some people don't really get it. Yeah, so. I, I do not get it. And, and so I, I, you know, the, I, I'm blessed that my genetics allow me to taste cilantro without tasting soap. And I would suggest that I'm also blessed that uh, I don't have to, I don't get the runner's high and I do not get a, I've tried the cold plunge. I do, I do not feel good afterwards. I just feel cold and I don't get it. So maybe the brown fats increase. Maybe my life would be better if I did it, but I, I don't know. I think I'm in pretty decent health. Do you uh, not eat breakfast for fasting or just not hungry? No, I'm just not hungry, right? So I wouldn't necessarily say that I do intuitive eating because my intuition says eat pizza nonstop. And so I certainly wouldn't listen. Like my body has no idea what to ask for when it comes to food. So it's an idiot. I would not trust it at all with what I'm trying to eat. But I tend not to eat if I'm not hungry. And I get hungry at like 9 p.m., which is awful. Um, and so I'll eat very little sort of in the beginning of the day. I'll have a lunch. I'll have a dinner. And then I just get voraciously hungry for whatever reason at 9 o'clock. And so if I tried to eat a bigger breakfast, I probably would avoid that kind of pre-bed just gorging on food. So it'd be a more responsible thing to do. But it's I find it really hard to eat when I'm not hungry. So in the mornings, I tend to just have a yogurt maybe have a protein shake, something like that. But they're usually small, not a ton of calories, not super energetic. But it works for me. It just kind of fits with my life. And I'm not somebody who can force myself through eating in a particular way. Well, like that, I'm not hungry in the mornings either. I only eat because yeah. otherwise coffee would hurt my stomach. <laughs> yeah, see, I have coffee before I have food. That would destroy me. Right. I just have worse stomach ache. Yeah, yeah. A lot of folks have told me the same thing, right? It's like, how, how dare you have coffee before food? I wish. Right. I, stomach of a champion. I, I could eat anything. Love that. Jealous. Thanks. So would you, uh, like, do you work a lot? Are you working on weekends or do you, you big on yeah. that balance? There are times that you have to work in evenings and weekends. And when you're helping to run a company, you know, across the country, you're going to have weird hours. And you're going to travel a reasonable amount of time. So, you know, back and forth to the coasts, spending a lot of time in different jurisdictions. And, you know, if you want to get the time of your senior team, the larger you grow, the more likely you are to have off peak meetings. 
And they can be really productive because a one o'clock meeting could be five or 10 minutes with the partnership here and really productive in that five or 10 minutes. But sometimes you need to sit back and have a really good conversation for an hour. And sometimes you can only do that Saturday at 10 p.m. The other partners at Sterling all have young kids. We're a young firm in terms of how old the actual leadership is. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us have a lot of family obligations. And it's not unusual for us to sort of plan a call at 9.30 and cross our fingers that all the kids are in bed. And then one of us will send a message saying, mine's not asleep yet. Can we push it back another 30 or 40 minutes? So those 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock meetings at night are more a necessity just because that's the only time you can carve out. We don't necessarily do that religiously. We do that because it's a part of having to run a business as part of the obligation of making good, responsible decisions, but also trying to be as hyper-collaborative as you can while doing it and try not to work in isolation. So I think that it's probably longer hours maybe than a lot of folks, but I think it's more about the responsibility of making good decisions and having good conversations and, and trying to do so only in eight hours a day is almost impossible. And it's as much a function of availability as it is just about getting the right amount of work done. Hmm. Think you'll always be working? Absolutely not. No, I'm not one of those people who works and finds you know a tremendous amount of personal fulfillment and validation from it. I think I like my work. I think I happen to fall into a role that I really enjoy that takes full advantage of my talents and interests. But I am absolutely the sort of person who, you know, when I'm done, I'm done, and I have you know no interest of going back. Strong interest in you know retiring and moving on sooner rather than later. And when I do so, I won't be here until I'm like 60 or 70. I know folks who will work themselves because they love it right into the grave because that's they're passionate about it. That won't be me. I think that when I retire, whether it's in five years, ten years, or twenty years, it will be a really like a closed door, not going back never working again, moving on with the next part of my life and spending as much time with my family and friends. Work is not so fulfilling or so central a part of my identity that I think it's a necessary part to continue. Yeah. I used to think that I'd always be working, but not. I've changed my mind as I've gotten older. I think that idea of being the richest person in the graveyard doesn't appeal. Right. <laughs> you, right. you don't want to be that. No. Have some balance enjoy your life. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, the neat thing about you is you do... Like you write, you've published what, four books? So I've published four or five. So I don't think that all four are available right now. I think there's three that are available right now actively on Amazon. So I've got this sort of rich inner life that allows me to continue to write. I haven't done a whole lot of that in the last couple of years as Sterling's grown. I was going to say, how do you have time for that? <laughs> yeah, I don't. No, I don't. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely don't have time for it, right? Like my first child was born in 2012. And I think my last book was published in 2012. And that works out yeah, really okay. well. That's a perfect coincidence. And so I, those are the sort of things you want to get back to in, in retirement, right? Those are the sort of things that you want to kind of move on with and continue doing because they're good passions. They've never been good money-making propositions, but they're really fulfilling and fun things to do. And the opportunity to do more than that is something I would never pass on. Hmm. And they're scary books, right? They're, they're thrillers. So, I mean, yeah. So one of them is a thriller and the other two were, were, were dark sci-fi novels. Um, oh, okay. That I found the reviews really hilarious because the things that people post like, hey, this is really hard to follow. My favorite review was like, once I started taking notes, it became a lot more enjoyable read. And it's fun to be someone who creates and you're obviously a very creative person. So you know what this is like. And then to have unpredictable or reactions from folks that you couldn't have predicted when you pushed, like, I didn't know that you would get you folks would latch on to this. Like, why is that important? But they do, right? And that's the really interesting part of having an audience and getting to know them mm. is really seeing how they've interpreted the work that you've done and the feedback that they've given you largely anonymously. These are people that I've never met and, yeah. and likely never never will meet. And you know, I have a particular view of my work and they have a totally different view. We both read the same thing. The only difference is that I wrote it. 
And it's totally, uh, in many cases, incongruent, but really fascinating. It is. The other day, I saw a comment about me and it said, I don't like her. She reminds me of a cyborg. <laughs> so right. I went on and I said, what do you have against cyborgs? Right. Like, What's, yeah, is you. that a positive thing? Like, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Like, yeah. yeah, this you got to be careful what you say about cyborgs these yeah. days because there's going to be a lot more of them over the next decade. Uh-huh. It's going to be a protected genre. <laughs> it's funny how the different people out there and what they have to say. Yeah, pretty hilarious. What is your plans for the future? Like, If you could envision the perfect future for you, what would that be? I mean, for me, I'm a relatively simple person. I make most of my plans around food. And so like, I don't go on, like when I go on a vacation, I mean, this is a really good example. When I was in Italy, you know, I planned almost everything I did around food, but there's things that you have to do. So when I was in Florence, you have to go see the statue of David. And I remember going into the museum and obviously it's a large museum. There's lots of pieces, but I'm only there to see the David so I can check that off the list and then return to going to get food. So I walked into the museum, I turned left and there it was. I was like, great, there it is. I spent a minute and a half looking at him and thought, way bigger in person than I would have imagined. And then I left and I went to go buy a coffee shop and start eating again. Mm-hmm. So I haven't done enough traveling. So I think that there's this significant amount of travel in my future. I also think that that travel is going to be based on you know cultures I haven't been to before. I, I haven't spent a lot of time in Asia and I'd love to just go on eating tours everywhere I possibly can. So that future is almost entirely going to be based around where I'm eating, what I'm eating. Even in the middle of the day, I'll be like, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? And if I ever look like I'm sort of like spaced out and deep in thought, I'm not thinking about anything particularly interesting. I'm just thinking about food and what I'm going to do next. Like that is almost the... Uh, I'm a, I like to tell family and friends that if you could imagine what a hobbit would do, it's almost always going to be what I would do. And I think the movies did a great job of sort of showing the food-obsessed nature of particularly Merry and Pippin. And that's right up my alley. I think I was born to sit around and wonder about first breakfast, second breakfast, all that kind of good stuff. Every night when I lay in bed, that's always what I think about. What am I going to eat tomorrow? What am I, yeah, that's the exciting part. It's like, can't wait to wake up and start eating I again. Eat, yeah, coffee and food. And I think about all the things I'll create. Like maybe right. I'm to make some broccoli and brownies. There you go. So I have to ask, is there anything that you'd change if you could go back or if you could go and talk to young John, young Johnny boy? Yeah, I think I followed a very accidental but straight line path through corporate Canada that was risk adverse for the first sort of decade and a half of, uh, of my career. And I think that if I had made, um, if I knew what I knew now about how, I'm not going to say easy, but how possible it is to be successful, you know, working on your own, working as, with entrepreneurs, whether you want to be an entrepreneur or be an operator working alongside entrepreneurs, I think both paths are, are really fulfilling. I think that I would have probably moved into something like this a lot sooner and taken those risks a lot earlier in my career. And I think you do a good job of talking about how you know in your early 20s is when you sort of started this journey that you've been on over the past uh, little while. And I certainly didn't. I was in my late 30s before I, before I really took on any significant risk. And it was a great move at the time. But you know, how could things have changed or would have accelerated where I am today if I had started 10 or 15 years before mm-hmm. that? And obviously, your 20s are the best time to take on risk. And you don't have obligations. You don't have family. You don't have responsibilities. It becomes a lot easier to take on risk because you're the only one who has to deal with the consequences of screwing up. So I think certainly I would have pulled forward a lot of my more risk-taking views and activities and would have been really interesting to see how that turns out. I don't think I took enough risk early on. That's for sure. That's interesting because that's something that I hear a lot, when I, especially if I'm doing a, a speech live, is that people will come up and they'll say that they want to take this risk. They either want to start this business or they want to join this business, but they're afraid. And, and I say to them, especially when they're young, because if I'm speaking at a university, the majority of them are students, I'm like, do it now. <laughs> you before you have yeah. all the weight of the world on your shoulders. 
100%. People are so scared. We're so conditioned to stay the path. I agree. And I also think that the education system hasn't done a great job of helping people be okay with risk. And we also punish failure as a culture way too much. And we tend to hold people out based on what they failed trying to do rather than celebrate the fact that, hey, you tried. You almost should have like, if someone starts a business that fails, you almost should have like a party. (laughs) Congrats. You tried. Good job. Can't wait till you try the next thing. What do you think you learned this time that you do differently next time? so that you can be successful next time. And I feel like if we reacted that way to people's failings, because they're not personal failings, it's business. These things sometimes just happen. And there's so many things that are outside of your control that if you just do what you... Like try and focus on what you control and try and focus on how you can respond to these external factors, that's a success. Whether or not that success kind of made it into your bank account or not. Like just make sure that you focus on doing the best you possibly can every day, but celebrate those failures but we don't. And that's really unfortunate. Although I think you know, folks like you and I can help start turning that around. And I think that you're seeing that more. Like There's an expectation now that people... And maybe it's not an expectation, might be a strong word, but there's certainly a respect now for people who take that path rather than doing very boring thing. And I think it was you know, Jim Carrey did a commencement address you know, years ago where he said, you can fail what you hate, so you might as well try what you love. And I think that that's really central part of good learning for any young person these days. That was an incredible speech. So good. But yeah, we think that we have to avoid failure at all costs. And so we stop by doing we stop at doing anything where we could pot- potentially fail. And I always say, expect failure. Expect yeah. that you're going to fail and embrace it. What yeah. can I learn from this? How can I get better? How can I not lose next time? And you know, it's like, if you look at the best athletes in the world, imagine they lost a game. And we're like, all right, let's throw in the hat. Yeah, right. They lose one game or one championship, but they turn around and retire. No, they're like, what do we do wrong? They sit down and they agonize over what they can do to improve and they keep working really hard and try and do better next time. You know, confusingly, failure, if you're not failing, you're never going to succeed. You're not trying. And as I often try to tell the folks that I mentor, if you don't get a lot of no's, then you're not asking for enough. Mm -hmm. And from both from yourself, from the people that you work with around you, but you've you've got to be prepared to fail if you want to be truly very successful. And you have to be well-conditioned and resilient. And you just try and build capacity for resilience and build a community of folks who will support you through failures and do almost anything. I have a a friend and we were talking a couple of years ago about his... He he built this company, this tech company, and he sold it to Google. And he was saying how funny it is because he's been interviewed so many times and featured. And nobody remembers that his first company before that was a huge failure. He ended up borrowing a bunch of money from family and friends, raising all this money. And the person that he was working with ended up stealing all the money and he lost all his family and friends' money. And so it was this huge epic failure. And he was like, this is it. Never going to be able to do anything again. But then he went on and he founded this next company and that's all that anybody remembers. Yeah. Yeah. People remember his epic failure. No, they, for the most part, people don't. And that's what I think most people don't get is you probably agonize over your failures more than anybody else does. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> now you don't really, you don't show up too much on social media. Yeah, I don't. I certainly don't. I don't have it's very much. Fly under the radar. Yeah, I think that we've corporately, we're, niche is not a bad word for us. We really like being sort of smaller and nimble and able to act without folks kind of knowing what we're doing and how we're doing it. I think me personally, don't have a big social media following, haven't really been engaged with the platforms. Mm-hmm. I think insurance in general is a very, very old-fashioned industry, which makes it easy to compete in because it, it's not necessarily very transformational. And particularly on my part of the industry, which is largely distribution, 
you know, insurance distribution hasn't changed in 150 years, right? So a broker will show up and they'll ask some questions. They'll disappear for two or three weeks and they'll come back and they'll give you a proposal. And if I had described that process in the 1850s, 60s, or 1870s, people would be like, yeah, that's insurance. That's how insurance gets sold. This is exactly what we do. The insurance companies are the same as they were back then, right? So there's still the same four or five big players that were in place back then. There's some consolidation, maybe a little bit of expansion, but the market is largely the same and the way that the product is distributed is the same. There was not social media in the 18 hundreds. And so it's not as required today to have it. And I think that the folks who have found ways to use technology to innovate on the experience have seen a lot of success. And that's certainly something that I think we have done. But I don't think that anyone has done a really good job of leveraging social media and attention to drive business results. I think that we haven't necessarily tried. I haven't tried myself. I think that it's still... I'm not necessarily an, an old school person when it comes to that. But I think that there's a one of the main problems with insurance is that it's been successful for a very long time. And it's one of the few businesses that you can count on being robust and good markets and in good times and bad. In good times, people buy more insurance because they can. In bad times, people buy more insurance because they need it. So it's not necessarily recession-proof. But as these cycles sort of come and go, insurance is a good through line that behaves really reasonably well the entire time. So there hasn't been a ton of attention on transformation of the industry. And and I think that's overdue. I think that we skipped probably a lot of the social media. I think AI is going to have a really big impact on how insurance is delivered over the next five to 10 years because there's a huge amount of data and there's a great opportunity to leverage that. There's not a really good understanding of how to do it. I think AI can be really instrumental in how we engage with policyholders, how we engage with plan members, how we engage with insurance providers. And, and I think that that's going to be a place that we don't miss out on over the next little while. But I think social media, for a large part, we did. And I don't know if anyone's going to go back and, you know, I can't see an insurance carrier doing TikTok dances to draw. T- I just, I mean, it would be probably be amazing, but I really can't see that happening anytime over the next little while. So I think that as an industry, we've skipped social media. We're going to dive right back into the next big thing, which is going to be AI. Awesome. If you if you weren't in insurance, where in you, I mean, right now, what do you think would be the best industry to start in? So I had this conversation yesterday with the CEO of, a, of another fin- financial services company, and the two of us were talking about how we've managed to grow our respective companies largely because we compete against folks who are either flat-footed or happy. They're content with the way their business is going right now. So it's relatively easy, if not to be disruptive, to at least be innovative and then sort of leap over folks from a service offering and get that right to win. I think that I would find an industry that has not a lot of great competitors. So maybe said in another way, when blockchain and crypto became big, overnight, there were thousands of crypto companies that opened up. Now that AI is becoming big overnight, there are thousands of AI companies that are opening up. I think I would try and find industries that people are not getting into because smart people, as smart as they are, tend to think that they can do better than other smart people. And that's actually really hard, right? So I'd rather be a really compelling fish in a small pond than try and get into the same space and muscle in, assume I'm going to be better than other folks who are chasing the same market. So I don't necessarily think that I'm so smart and so innovative and so good at what I do on a daily basis that I can compete against thousands of people. So to a certain extent, it's the law of large numbers. I don't want to compete against a lot of folks. I'm going to try and compete in an industry against very few folks. So I almost would go to universities and be like, what programs do you have that have almost no enrollment? Right. Ah. Very counterintuitive. I'm going to go to the places that people aren't, and I'm going to try and compete 
where where people are not going to compete. I think insurance, certainly on the distribution side, is one of those places. We've had a replacement problem for a very long time where the key distribution people in Canada in particular, aging out of the marketplace, the average age when I joined was like 55. The average age now is well over 60. There's not people coming in to replace them. So although I did this by accident, I did not do this by design. I happened to come into an industry that had less and less people coming in to replace the aging workforce. I would look for that type of pattern again. Like that's the kind of pattern recognition that I would try and take advantage of. Go to places that people aren't, sell things that people aren't selling and focus on sales because there's no such thing as a business that doesn't have sales. You can't just have a great idea. You actually have to go out there and get some sales attached to it. Can you think of any industries off your head? I think insurance is still one. I don't think that has changed at all. The number of, you know, when I sit back and I think about my peers in this industry who have managed to, on both sides of the borders, create unicorns out of nothing over the course of four or five years, that doesn't really happen to a lot of businesses that are cash flow positive unicorns. It was relatively easy to have a really cool idea, get a lot of attention, and, and land a, a unicorn style valuation. But to build an actual business that creates revenue, employs people, provide services and scales up really quickly. Financial services and insurance has been able to do that, even absent technology, to just have a service provider that's slightly better as a service provider. Or there's lots of aggregators right across the, the continent that have aggregated together smaller brokers on an M&A journey and have created a tremendous amount of value and equity for the folks who run them. Those are the type of really boring businesses that don't attract people. So whether it's financial services or insurance, it healthcare, Right, is a massive and growing but very boring industry. There's a huge opportunity to be, if not transformational, just get a piece of the pie. And the pie is so big and so poorly understood, there's a great opportunity to create a lot of value there. So I think those are the sort of industries that, you know, big or small, that I would try and move into. And I think that there's a lot of them across North America. Um, and I think that you look at the schools and look at people who are graduating, and there's tons of engineers and there's tons of folks who are who are trying to get trained into tech. So that's probably the one place I wouldn't go. I would look for all... Like the other industries aren't going anywhere. We still need people to build things. We still... Like there's probably a great opportunity to go out and buy up a whole bunch of building companies across the country because people will still need places to live. And we don't have enough tradespeople. We don't have enough contractors. We don't have enough people building single family homes. And there's a great opportunity to build. And that's as boring an industry as you could possibly imagine. And it's probably a good opportunity for folks to get into it. You know, you can't write a program and AI isn't going to build a house. So they're not going to come and fix your plumbing. These are all things that businesses that are boring and old and not going anywhere. Mm, I love that. counterintuitive. And I think that's part of my mantra to folks is just be as counterintuitive as possible. Like if the winds are going that way, go the other way and you'll probably figure something out on the way. And I was kind of looking for the the unsexy places, you know, everybody yes. kind of flashy, the crypto and that. You got it. You for things that aren't so shiny. And... Yep. Find the boring, unshiny things and polish them up and make them better. If you can do that, then you'll be successful. Brilliant. Oh, John, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. How can people support you? How can they find you? Where can they get your books? So, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. If you look up John Griffin books on Amazon, one's called Ready, Set, Psycho. One's called Darkness. You can find them there. The Darkness one is the one that you should take notes on if you're going to read it. And so, you know, buyer beware. It's a, it's a really difficult book to follow along with. And so you can... I mean, the only social that I'm relatively active on is LinkedIn. So that's probably the best place to find me. And so if you look for me, you'll find me there. I'm relatively active. So you'll get a response pretty quickly. Oh, incredible. Well, thank you again for being here. This was, this was so good. So many great things. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> thank you. it. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> 